ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between. Welcome to another episode of the Jake Botel Sports Experience. My name is Jake Botel, and I'll be your host today as we dive into another edition of my college football notebook dump. Uh, this is volume two. We had a look at some spring games and some thoughts on NIL uh, in the last episode, so you should definitely go back and have a listen to that one. Today, you're going to be looking at four schools, uh, the spring games of which I have consumed in some form or other, uh, Michigan, Utah, Miami, and Oklahoma. This is basically just me, uh, you know, diving back into college football. As I said on the last episode, I tend to take a little hibernation from American football uh, during the, the Aussie rules season. It's other sports I need to watch and consume, been watching a lot of Gaelic Athletic Association hurling as well, but this last four weeks, been churning back up into the American football season, been smashing some uh, Cover 3 podcast, I've been diving into these spring games. A lot of people don't think you can draw much from spring games, and look, I don't think you can draw a heap, but I always think it's interesting to look at, particularly quarterbacks, I think you can always be making evaluations on quarterbacks because the argument often is oh well it's just spring game defense well then if it's just spring game defense you should be making good decisions all the time because you're not facing as much pressure so if you're not carving it up in the spring game oh what's going on uh, so we'll have a look at just basically it's a notebook dump that's what it is that's what it is i keep a document on my phone when i'm watching these games just write down anything that pops off the screen to me uh, it's not always in-depth. It could just be really liked, you know, this play from running back X at school X, made a nice cut, you know, hit the hole, made a man miss, whatever. Um, just little notes that I'm going to dump into your ear holes uh, and players maybe that you'll keep an eye on this college football season. I'm very excited to be able to actually watch college football properly this year. Um, due to uh, an internet situation out here in the middle of nowhere being rectified. Um, I'll also share with you, I've been, listen, uh, been reading uh, Meat Market by Bruce Feldman. Can't remember if I mentioned that on the last podcast. I've, I read two-thirds of this book um, probably six months ago. It wasn't that I didn't like the book. I just find reading at times, you know, it's really competing uh, against some other forms of entertainment and education for me. It, it, you know, when I've got podcasts and films and, you know, TV series, sometimes hard for a book to get a look in edgewise. So I just sort of lost momentum with the reading, not with the book itself. So I've attacked it again and I'm halfway through it, really keen to finish it. But it's been fascinating reading again. I mean, this is set in uh, 2006, I think, as Ole Miss under Ed Orgeron. Uh, you know, recruit their 2007 class of players. There's some, you know, some familiar characters in there, including Hugh Freeze uh, as well, who's on that Ed Orgeron staff. Just really interesting, you know, like a big takeaway for me has been one, I think Bruce Feldman should do uh, a sequel novel set now uh, in this Wild West landscape of, essentially regulationless NIL. 
uh, and conference realignment and, you know, the eminent breaking away of the power elite teams in college football from out under the NCAA, which I think is what we're headed for. Um, I would love a book now and, and, and in future, I would love a TV, so, uh, TV series. Would love a TV show written and created by the people who did Billions, which is an awesome series. They need to do one about college football as it stands right now. But a, a takeaway, I guess, from Meat Market reading it is that it's such a strange dynamic, college football recruiting, where you've got, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 year old dudes, um, you know, working as, you know, on these coaching staffs in these recruiting rooms, you know, essentially kind of like text flirting and calling with these like high school dudes. Like it's a strange dynamic. You're really, you know, there's a lot of wooing involved. Um, and, and, you know, as I said, this book was written 15 years ago. Uh, I doubt the dynamic has changed much, if at all. If anything, I think it's probably only grown more so as you now have more to offer. Uh, over the table, not under the table, with things like NIL, etc. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a bizarre dynamic, you know. And and the book talks about you know the the different sort of ways in which you know coaching staffs and recruiting staffs were you know circumnavigating um, their way around the NCAA's attempt to sort of streamline and legalize and, and codify recruiting rules. And, you know, you can only call a player once every, I don't know what it was, a week or whatever it was, you know, but if the player calls you, well, you can answer the phone. And so then because text messages weren't covered in the, in the legalese, well, what if I text a recruit and say, call me? Well, then you're allowed to pick up. Or coaches were getting on, I can't remember if it was Call of Duty or something, you know, playing PlayStation with kids online and being able to, you know, uh, recruit them while they play Call of Duty. And all these ways, like coaching staffs constantly looking for ways to find an edge in the recruiting game. The recruiting is almost like another sport in and of itself. Uh, I think they should give out trophies. I mean, maybe they do. I, I guess sites like 24-7, you know, award the, you know, their number one, number two, whatever recruiting class ranking. So I guess that in and of itself is a reward to have the number one class as recognized by the industry leading websites and all that sort of thing. Um, but it is a different sport. It's a whole different world. And these people are so competitive. You know, there's a thing in it where, Ed Orgeron, at the start of the book, um, they're talking about when he was working as a recruiting coordinator uh, at USC, uh, and the the coach at the time was fired, and so technically, Orgeron wasn't guaranteed of a job, but he went out and hit the recruiting trail anyway, and he copped some some sort of shit stirring and shit talking from other scouts, sort of saying, "Why the fuck is he recruiting? Uh, he doesn't have a job." And when Pete Carroll became coach of USC and sort of installed Ogeron as his, you know, right-hand man in, in recruiting, Ogeron demanded to have the territory of that recruiter who'd said these things about him 
um, and basically spent the next few years recruiting that guy out of a job to the point where that dude was, was let go by his school. Like, there's... It is vicious. It is a vicious game, and, and there's no greater illustration of that, perhaps, than Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher going at each other. Um, you know, Saban alleging that Fisher... And Texas A&M, who had the number one recruiting class, you know, this season, they bought all their players. Well, you're allowed to now. So I don't know. It's fascinating, the level of ego. And I'm fascinated by it. Uh, and I always will be. But it's 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 a, it's a, a landscape devoid of ethics. Um, but that doesn't make it any less fascinating to me. Um, and... It just raises interesting questions, like of leadership, and how do you then get? You know, people go, "Oh, yeah, athletes today are so spoiled," you know, they think they deserve everything. Well, they've been promised everything too. If you're coming out of high school and you've now got, you know, forty, fifty, sixty-year-old coaches who are at the top of their profession saying, "We'll offer you millions of dollars to come and play for our school. We really need you. You're the piece that'll get us over the line." you know, essentially begging you to come to their school, well, of course you're going to feel like you have the upper hand in the, in, in the relationship and then may find it difficult to take, you know, coaching. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting dynamic to me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I don't think, I, I'm definitely for player compensation in one way shape or form that doesn't mean it comes absent you know any sort of pitfalls i think it's 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 a we're in a really lawless time of in the nil landscape in player recruitment landscapes i think it does need to find some sort of balance again and and it will inevitably but I, i don't think it'll be under the watch of the ncaa i think it'll be once there's a breakaway um and the top, say, 50 or 60 schools do their own thing, codify their own rules and laws um, underneath the college football playoff. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's the theory that I've heard floated a lot on these podcasts and makes a lot of sense to me. Um, let's get into, though, uh, and you should definitely go and read Meat Market. It's amazing. I, I, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to read um, Feldman and Ogeron's follow-up book, which is uh, Flip the Script, about 2019 LSU. Can't wait to read that one. So definitely go and check out Meat Market. Don't know if you can get it on Audible or something as an audio book. That's also probably a good way to check it out. Let's start here with a notebook dump on the Michigan Wolverines, the Blue versus Maze um, spring game. Didn't see a lot of Cade McNamara. Now, I'm watching probably 25 to 30-minute edits of these games. I'm not sitting down watching 90 minutes snap-by-snap spring game. As I said, this is really just for me to get uh, a snapshot look at a team, at a roster. Hey, this guy popped to me. Um, that That's sort of what, what it is, really. So, uh, Davis Warren... The quarterback, he, he got a lot of game time. Warren, uh, Alan Bowman, Texas Tech transfer. Uh, both of those guys got a, a lot of game time. Alex Orgy also 
uh, late on took a few snaps as well. But but Warren and Bowman uh, seem to be figuring pretty prominently. I think McNamara might have had a couple of drives at most, and then then sort of sat out. Uh, Warren looked reliable enough. Nice arm strength. Good location on his throws. He threw a great deep route um, to uh, his running back, Edwards. Edwards uh, made a couple of nice... Uh, that, that catch in particular, it was a really nice deep route and great ball tracking, I thought, from a running back. So he looks like, you know, a great weapon for Michigan. Um, freshman wide receiver uh, Walker in the second half. Um, Grabbed a nice deep ball to set up a red zone possession off Davis Warren. Um, Warren made a nice play too at one point in the game, buying time in the pocket, throwing to his left as he moved to his right. So sort of nice ability to improvise. Um, Bowman, I thought, had some nice throws, but was pretty inconsistent. He was up and down. He did throw one really gorgeous deep ball, but yeah, he was hit and miss. For me, uh, the other QB, Alex Orgy, uh, an early enrollee, he faked out the cameraman on, on a QB keeper at one point to the point where, you know, the camera loops up to follow the running back and then has to scurry back to the quarterback. Um, Orgy sort of uh, seemed to be a run-heavy sort of QB was able to hang in and take a hit when delivering a throw. That was one thing that sort of stood out to me. Like, he was courageous, talked a bit of shit into the face of uh, one of the lads who put him out of bounds on a QB run. So he didn't seem to be lacking for confidence, I didn't think. He didn't look particularly polished, but um, was not lacking for confidence. On the defensive side of the ball, there was a really nice pass breakup from DJ Turner down the sideline, tracked the ball well, got up to swat it down uh, in front of his receiver. Jalen Harrell, Harrell, a four-star defensive lineman, uh, made a couple of, uh, made one nice play in particular right at the death, uh, got around the edge to force a fumble uh, that effectively killed the game off for his team. I had a look at his um, recruiting profile, Harrell, and he has sort of, he's played, this is his, Third year at Michigan. He only played two games in 2020, six in 2021. So uh, you'd be thinking he'd be angling for a lot more game time in 2022 as he looks to grow into his college football career. And as I said, made a really nice play at the death to seal the game for his team, forcing that fumble. Those were sort of my notes on Michigan. They had a nice year last year. Um, there were a few little bits and pieces that popped out to me, but it wasn't one of the more entertaining spring games uh, that I watched personally. As I said, they kept Cade McNamara pretty effectively iced. Um, let's have a chat about Miami. So Miami now coached by Mario Cristobal, um, formerly of Oregon. A lot of run in this game, a lot of running game, particularly, I was going to say early, but just all over the spot. Uh, they ran the ball nine of 15 plays on the first drive. It was Parrish who was getting fed big time, um, having an absolute day uh, full of carries, but also a few receptions as well. I thought he was a pretty physical runner. 
uh, had some nifty movement as well. Like it wasn't just a straight ahead guy. He could, you know, shift and, and make a man miss and all that sort of stuff. So I, I thought he had a, a decent day. It didn't pop off the screen quite like uh, another running back we'll talk about later for Utah. Um, uh, Van Dyke, Tyler Van Dyke, uh, looked pretty obviously, you know, he's their number one starter um, and, and had a lot of game time too. They really uh, kept him in uh, the spring game. I haven't watched a lot of Tyler Van Dyke, but, you know, the things that immediately sort of popped off the screen for me, he's obviously strong-armed, um, operates the offense really well, throws well on the move, you know, a clear and obvious college-level starter. He's a beefy kind of dude, like he's very thick-framed. Um, I'm really interested to sort of see, like, how Mario Cristobal uses him and, and you know, what his future looks like after college. Because I think about a guy like Justin Herbert, who was coached um, by Cristobal, and nobody really thought he had, you know, massive NFL future until his last season in college. And even then, no one expected him to turn into what he has turned into. It's almost like we were suddenly... You know, uh, he we had his full skill set revealed to us at the NFL level when people sort of cut him loose and let him throw deep and, you know, get creative and use his agility and all that sort of stuff. Like, I wonder how Tyler Van Dyke is going to be used because for whatever reason, um, I just got that those similar vibes of like a guy who's big, strong-armed. Um, and will we get to see him throw deep a lot? I suppose, yeah, just because they're running the ball a lot doesn't mean they're not going to let him throw, but I just know how conservative Mario Cristobal was with Herbert as well. And it definitely looks like they're leaning towards a run-first um, style of play at Miami. Uh, a couple of defensive notes, uh, well, one in particular. Uh, Gilbert Frierson made an absurd play, bursting into the backfield on a blitz to take down the running back, almost mid-handoff. Actually, no, he he wasn't... That wasn't off the edge, that one. That was coming through on a blitz. I think this was down in the red zone, too, from memory. Like, tackling the running back almost in the middle of the handoff with the QB. And that, you know, stuffed them down in the red zone. It was a great play. Also made a nice tackle, getting out to the edge um, to bring down the runner. That was just a few plays later. Uh, so that was a nice tackle for loss. So Gilbert Fryerson had a couple of really nice moments. Uh, he was listed as a DB his first three years, and I've just seen um, on Sports Reference uh, his stats page. He's listed as a UT, which I'm assuming is a utility player. Um, there sort of seemed to be a bit of um, conjecture as to whether he was a DB or a linebacker. Some sites have him listed as a linebacker, some as a DB, so I'm assuming that's why he's now listed as a as a utility. He's played a lot more the last two years, or at least had a lot more production. He's been at Miami since 2018. Um, he played 10 games last season, had a total of 41 tackles, three and a half of those were for loss, and a sack. 2020 he had a great year. Uh, 53 combined tackles, nine tackles for loss, and two sacks with four passes defended uh, and one fumble recovery. So, yeah, he, he definitely popped off the screen uh, 
to me did Gilbert Frierson. So those were my sort of notes on Miami. Next up, let's trip on over to Utah and the Utes spring game, which was played mostly in driving rain and sometimes uh, in a bit of sunshine, but mostly it was rainy. So it was interesting to have a look at the, the skill execution. The Utah defense, let's start there. They were bringing the pressure. Like there was multiple times, you know, you watch some spring games and it's not very exotic. You know, it's very basic defensive coverages and, and not a lot goes on. And these guys were bringing blitzes. There was one blitz play where I reckon they had eight rushes, seven or eight guys, um, which is, you know, the, the proverbial bring the house. Uh, so they were getting a lot of pressure to their QBs. Um, a lot of sort of QB stuff to look at. Cam Rising, who's the starter. Uh, linked up with Vele on a dime of a sideline ball, then a slant. Those were sort of back-to-back, -back, really nice passes. Beautiful one-handed sideline catch by wide receiver Cope. Um, Cope's catch was an absolute beauty, like in the rain, on the sideline, catching the ball as it sort of went out over the boundary with his, with his sideline hand. Um, so it was a great sort of reach out to grab it, reel it in, and secure the ball. In the rain, that was a beautiful catch. So I thought Cam Rising showed, yeah, well and truly why he's the clear and obvious starter. His backups, Jaquindon Jackson and Bryson Barnes. Uh, Jackson having transferred from Texas. Uh, Jackson, I think, seems like more of an obvious number two. Uh, you know, demonstrated his mobility and escapability, but also hung in the pocket um, more often to try and make passes. While I thought Barnes was actually more prone to sometimes freezing in the face of pressure or tucking and running instead of trying to prolong his opportunity to pass. But Barnes, to his credit, did have a really nice second half and led his team to two touchdown drives. But I think it was Jackson who, who should be the backup here. Displayed some really nice touch throws, including one dime to the corner of the end zone in the third quarter for a touchdown. So I thought decent days for both of those guys. But if I had to pick the backup, I'd be picking Jaquindon Jackson, uh, the, the Texas transfer. My sort of the, the player who really popped off the screen for me was running back Jalen Glover, who is a four-star freshman running back uh, out of Lake Gibson high school in lakeland florida now this dude had offers out the wazoo dating back to 2019 southern miss miami ucf temple arkansas south carolina florida state usf uh, west virginia connecticut toledo fiu uh, howard uab michigan state appalachian state charlotte 49ers uh, where else have we got I want to read all these because, I mean, I know lots of players have lots of offers, but I could see why there was such interest. He also had offers from Tennessee, Tulane, Washington State, Arkansas State, Middle Tennessee, UCF, Louisville, Marshall, uh, Iowa, the Florida Gators. But he chooses to go with Utah. He, he rejects the uh, Florida Gators. He was crystal balled 
uh, back in July of 2021 to be going to um, Florida, but committed to the Utes in August of 2021. And he was fun to watch, Jalen Glover. Um, some beautiful running, slippery, elusive with his cuts, just, you know, oozed that ability to make the first tackler miss. Um, he just did that with such consistency. I really, really liked watching Jalen Glover, and and I feel like he is going to do really well for himself there at Utah. Liked his game a lot. I've saved my most gushing praise for last here, though, as we head on over to Oklahoma. Uh, now, as I've said earlier, I have only been able to watch college football inconsistently. Um, because of my internet setup. But I have watched it at times. Um, I watched most of the 2019 college football season. I watched definitely big swaths of play in 2020. Uh, 2021, didn't get to watch as much as I would have liked, as I said, because of internet issues out here in the middle of nowhere. But a player I'd seen maybe once or twice was Dylan Gabriel, but I felt like I was seeing Dylan Gabriel with new eyes down at Oklahoma. Um, this kid can be an absolute star. Good Lord. Like, uh, you know, being able to escape out of the pocket to his left, you know, escaping pressure, delivering gorgeous strike to his receiver to set up a first and goal. He's got an absolute flamethrower of an arm. I think, and sometimes actually, I think, and actually, I saw some people say, oh, you know, he doesn't have the, you know, sort of requisite arm strength for the next level. Well, I don't know. The, the, the arm strength popped off the screen to me. So maybe I'm just an idiot, which is possible. Um, but that was something that really struck me was like this combination of arm strength and, and accuracy that the location of his throws on deep balls is like really exquisite. Like I was, I went back and watched his highlight reel uh, after watching the spring game uh, when he'd played for UCF. And it was just like jaw dropping throw after jaw dropping, dropping throw of like deep ball, accurate placement, the receiver not having to come back to the ball. It was just to hands every time. Um, and obviously that's a highlight reel, but, but that shows the ceiling of the play. You know, some guys don't have those throws in their highlight reel. Their deep ball is constantly having to be come back at or it's overthrown. Like his accuracy was like just so noticeable. And the arm strength thing, I actually made the note. I thought he might need to learn to take just like 5% off some of those deep throws. Um, he actually had a nice location on a couple, but they were too hot to handle. So... Another thing, he fit a couple of really nice throws into tight windows. There was some really good sticky coverage from uh, Oklahoma's defense, and I'll get into sort of my thoughts on that side of the ball uh, under Brent Venables. But he was fitting some sideline throws into some really nice windows. Now, the receiver didn't always come out with the catch, but I didn't think that was anything to do with... Um, where the quarterback was putting the ball and the quarterback was definitely throwing the ball on those sideline throws, um, you know, those outside the number throws where only his receiver could get it for the most part. Now, he, he did have, I think there was one throw that stood out that 
either was picked or should have been picked. I can't remember exactly, but it was one where I went, well, that was, you know, a noticeably bad throw. But that was the only one. Everything else was just gorgeous. Like, he was getting it out so quick. Um, it was another nice touch throw, I thought. Beautiful timing and placement over the hand of the linebacker uh, to hit uh, Marvin Mims in stride. He's got obvious, like, playmaking ability. His ability to weave, backtrack, you know, then go back to the other side of the field and find the receiver for the first down. And that's a thing that stood out for me with Dylan Gabriel. He's not looking to create an opportunity for himself to run like some quarterbacks with a bit of mobility or athleticism will do. He's looking to prolong his window of opportunity to throw. And as he should, because his arm... And accuracy, his throwing ability is just really breathtaking, uh, in my opinion. Uh, another thing I noticed, just a small thing, like I said, I was watching this guy closely. I was really enjoying it. Um, really commits to the to the to those little things like you know the play fake of the ball. He got a linebacker really visibly biting down on the running back on on a play that was actually a pass. The ball ended up going over the top of that linebacker's head as he crashed down onto the running back. So it's those little things, like the the impression that I get, the impression that I get about Dylan Gabriel, in a way reminded me of Joe Burrow going to LSU. And I've got no idea what Gabriel's background is in terms of his study and that sort of thing. But, you know, there was sort of this thing about Burrow where, He'd completed all his study kind of thing. He, you know, he'd done all this study and it was like, I'm going to do a kind of a football internship at LSU. I'm going to really focus on, you know, almost taking this a professional approach to his quarterbacking in order to get himself ready for the next level. That just a different sort of uh, organization uh, and professionalism to Burrow that was obvious, even just watching him um, play the position. And I got similar vibes, not to the same level, but with Dylan Gabriel of like just a command of the offense uh, and an understanding of how to run it and all the parts of it, whether it was the reads and the execution of the throws to the correct read, things like his commitment to making those play fakes and play action work, all those things I just thought were, were really telling uh, about the kind of quarterback he can be um, if it all comes together this year. Um, what else did I have? Oh, the defense. I thought that there was a lot of energy about this Oklahoma Sooners defense. Guys flying around. There was a forced fumble in the first period of play, and that was no surprise to me. I mean, Brent Venables has overseen you know numerous great defenses down at Clemson, and I think that's what you're going to see this year at Oklahoma, um, the defense forced a second turnover in a row. Um, it was number 21. Dennis takes a great interception after getting a shove in the back on the sideline. That was actually the, this is the pick that um, Dylan Gabriel threw. He threw the ball uh, to, uh, to the sideline and the receiver shoved the cornerback in the back as the ball was arriving. The cornerback able to twist himself back into position, reach up and pluck that ball in front of the receiver. So that was one of uh, Dylan's poor throws on the day. 
Uh, and they actually forced a third turnover, the defense, with a hit on the running back right on the goal line that forced a fumble. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of sticky coverage, particularly out on the sideline. Uh, quarterbacks often forced to throw out near the numbers into very tight windows. And, you know, I think this is where you talk about the broader picture of Oklahoma and the departure of Lincoln Riley, the departure of Caleb Williams. They might have actually, and it's really early to tell and who knows, and, and you know, people will disagree, I'm sure. But, you know, is it possible that Oklahoma have actually lucked into a better situation long term? Like... There's no doubt Lincoln Riley's created, you know, he's, he's, he's overseen the Heisman Trophy efforts of two great quarterbacks in Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, you know, oversaw a great season from Jalen Hurts, you know, looks to have found another great QB in Caleb Williams, who is now with him at USC, but they never got that defense fixed at Oklahoma. And last year... Um, when they finished behind Oklahoma State and Baylor, Baylor and Oklahoma State both had superior defenses. That was sort of, you know, what their campaigns hinged on. And it was Oklahoma finishing in third place. Now, I just wonder if they look back in retrospect soon as fans and go, well, shit, getting Venables in actually helped us fix the defense and our offense didn't have to take too many steps backwards either. Like I, I really looked at the the offense. That the, now the run game, I thought, you know, didn't have its greatest day. And stats on the spring game may say differently, but I thought the offense looked more than efficient enough, um, and exciting to watch and productive. There was a different energy on on this defense, though. As I said, they forced at least three fumbles, uh, three turnovers that I saw, the two fumbles and the, the pick. I just wonder if they're in better shape with Venables at the helm because they never had a defense at Oklahoma under Lincoln Riley. It was a mess. And, you know, the two teams that closed the gap on them last season were Oklahoma State and Baylor, who both had good defenses. So, yeah, I just wonder if we look back and think that, you know, Venables getting there because Riley left actually does Oklahoma a favor, uh, particularly in, in the sort of broader view that they may be able to recruit some defensive players to Oklahoma that you might not have been able to under Lincoln Riley. Yeah, you got all the offensive stars, but maybe they'll start churning out better defensive recruiting classes there at Oklahoma. Don't know, but I'm really excited about Dylan Gabriel. I, I think we could be talking about him in the Heisman race. I think he'll put up you know, a statistical season uh, that will have him in the frame. And then he also has a great narrative around him in terms of, in terms of the return from you know, injury and all that sort of thing. Um, I, I really, really like Dylan Gabriel. And I'm going to be rooting for the Sooners under Venables because I think they got done dirty by Lincoln Riley and I want to see them do well. All right, guys, that'll do it for this uh, notebook dump on college football for now. I'll probably churn out another one of these in the next few days, in the next seven days at least. 
I've got a bunch of other games lined up to watch. I've got Washington, Washington State. I've got Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, uh, Purdue, Wake Forest, NC State, UNC. I've got all sorts of uh, spring games lined up to have a look at. So uh, I will catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening, guys.